Father in heaven, thank you for today, and I pray that uh, the blessings that we received in uh, the time that we've been here so far will continue to be poured out upon us. The truth is, Lord, we're here anticipating that your Holy Spirit will come to us in a mighty way at this camp meeting. How wonderful it would be if the fulfillment of the promise of the latter rain would take place while we're here. Lord, we, we are here today to learn how to serve you better because when you work in our hearts, we know that uh, you're going to work mightily to advance your work. And when that happens, even more so than it is already, that we will have even more work to do and we need to be organized and strong. I pray that you will guide our class today and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yesterday we um, took up some of the basics of being a deacon or a deaconess. And today we're continuing that. This is the second half. And notice that if it's the second half, it would be the last half, right? <laughs> of the class on uh, basic uh, work of deacons and deaconesses. And we kind of set the stage for what a deacon or deaconess is supposed to be. Uh, some of the qualifications of being a deacon or deaconess. And then we focused in on some of the basic uh, job description of deacons and deaconesses. The emphasis that we're placing here is that deacons and deaconesses are called to a specific work that is not just some of the basics that have become what deacons and deaconesses typically do in the local church. The taking up of the offering is important to God's work, isn't it? But it's more than just collecting an offering on Sabbath morning for deacons, or in some cases deaconesses assist with that as well, or opening the church or locking the church up. But we talked about a number of different things yesterday that fit into the category of the things that deacons and deaconesses should be doing. And just by way of a quick um, summary of that, in the deacons and deaconesses handbook on pages 60... 66, actually a little before that, but in that neighborhood in the chapter Partners in Ministry is a delineation a listing of duties of deacons and deaconesses, assistance at services and meetings, visitation to members, page 68 is where I'm at right now, preparation for baptismal service, baptismal service, assistance at communion service, care of the sick and aiding the poor and unfortunate, care and maintenance of the property. Six items listed there. A couple of them are not the kinds of things that you typically find deacons and deaconesses doing today. And as we uh, launched into this in the uh, main textbook that we're using by Vincent White, we identified the fact that Jesus himself was a model for us, a servant leader model that he demonstrated for us what he, uh, what he expects of his people in that he was not a king or a ruler, but he was a servant. And the word deacon, diakonos, in the Greek is, is a word that helps us to understand servanthood is what God has called us to be. We're not servants to buildings. We don't have keys to the church. 
that, that makes us a deacon because the Bible doesn't talk about having keys to the church and therefore you're a deacon. The Bible talks about how deacons came to be and they came to be because there was a conflict in the church and the people needed to be served. The widows needed to be served. And so the deacons were appointed to a task. They were ordained. You don't need to be ordained to carry a key around. But to serve the needs of people, the spiritual and physical needs of people, you need to be ordained. And that's part of the work that is outlined there and, uh, and is spoken of in the Bible. Some of these other things come along the way as caring for the needs so that the elders and the pastors, uh, the uh, pastors are kind of like, I want to be careful with this, I don't want you to go away, away, away with the wrong idea, but pastors are like the apostles of the of old, and the elders are like the elders that were designated in the church. But the bottom line is those individuals are set aside for the purpose of being the spiritual leaders in the church and, and praying and preaching and doing that work. But that doesn't exclude the deacons and deaconesses for having some of that spiritual duty as well. And the reason it doesn't is because deacons and deaconesses are disciples of Jesus Christ, right? Do you have to be ordained to be a disciple of Jesus? You have to be baptized eventually along the way, right? But you don't have to be ordained. The ordained disciples have a specific duty to do beyond what all the rest of the disciples are to do. According to Jesus in Matthew 28, we are called to be go out and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's what we're supposed to do. And everyone who comes in the church is supposed to be a disciple, correct? So the disciples include deacons because deacons are first disciples and deaconesses are also disciples. So those deacons and those deaconesses, because they're disciples, they're going to teach the word. They're going to let other people know about Jesus and what Jesus has done for them in their lives. They're going to be soul winners themselves. But because they've been called to a higher calling in terms of responsibility, doesn't make you higher than anybody else, doesn't make you a king or a queen. You are a higher calling in terms of duty and responsibility. And your work is to train other people to do what God has called them to do. Your work is to fulfill what Ellen White calls the establishment of our churches as training centers for Christian workers. Chapter 5, page 59 of Christian Service tells us that our churches should be training schools for Christian workers. And that means that you, along with the elders and the pastor, are the teachers, the leaders, the ones who are Leading the school, you'd never send your students, your kids, if you have kids still in school, or kids or friends or whatever, or yourself to a teacher who doesn't have any experience. So if you are in the church, you expect the leaders, the teachers, to be having that experience that they're going to pass on to you. I had a math teacher. I had lots of math teachers. Some were better than others. But I can tell you that all the math teachers that I sat under did know their math. And that's why they were math teachers. 
So you are teaching people to be disciples. That means you know what it means to be a disciple. Okay. Establish that point. What I'd like to do today, that's just a little summary of some of the things we did yesterday with a few little added pieces in there that I wanted to share. I'd like you to take your books today. And I want to bring in a piece here, and I really don't want to get bogged down on this because if I do, it's going to get off on the wrong track. But somebody did kind of uh, address that at the near the end yesterday and kind of wondered what, like, all right, I see the deacon part in here, but where'd the deaconesses come from? And, um, and let me just give you a little bit of history. That's the interesting thing that this book is really the, um, the layman's form of a doctrinal dissertation that Vincent White did. And he did it as a study, and that's why as you read this book, it's kind of like that. It feels a little bit like a doctrinal dissertation. And he brings a lot of different things in here. He brings uh, some history here about various denominations and what they did in terms of deacons and deaconesses and how this worked over time and so on and so forth. Well, when you're doing a doctoral dissertation, that's what you're doing. You're trying to get everything exhaustively out there that you possibly can to contribute to your understanding of that particular topic. And Dr. White was doing some of that kind of thing, and he's pulling that information in. But it's helpful for us because some of us wondered, I did, where did all this stuff come from? How did we get to where we are today? And he not only does it throughout uh, Protestantism and builds that connection, but he also brings in the Adventist connection and how deacons and deaconesses came, came to be. So I'm going to bring out a couple of pieces here uh, for you and... I'm going to look at chapter 3 to start with, page 13, entitled, Female Deacons of the First Century Christian Church. I'm going to hit every, uh, everything here, but I do want to bring out these couple of details. As far as we can tell, deaconesses were not there initially in the church. Well, we know that because there were seven deacons appointed, right? And it's very clear that they were men and that, uh, that that was the situation. I do want you to know that the discussion we're going to have in the next few minutes has no relevance and is not connected to the discussion of women's ordination or not. Okay? And he actually points that out later in the, in the next couple of chapters because he wants to make sure that, and he wrote this before GC last year, but he wanted to make sure that we weren't getting caught in that, that, that discussion. But he's just simply pointing out the history of how this developed. It, it appears that some of the deaconesses, the development of deaconesses, is that they might have been Mr. Deacon and Mrs. Deaconess, okay, or Mrs. Deacon. And that naturally there were some things that began to develop. Because, as I pointed out near the end of the class yesterday, when we were talking about the sick and the poor. There were no hospitals in those days. Dr. Luke was a doctor, and I'm sure he treated people to some extent, but that was really the extent of it, and there weren't many of those doctors, and you can just imagine the difference between a doctor in, in uh, 70 AD and a doctor in 2016, and the kind of environment that, that that would have. When you got sick, you were basically on your own and you had to fight that disease as best you possibly could. 
Now, we know that the woman who had a, an issue of blood had gone to all the doctors because the Bible tells us that in the Gospels and that Jesus healed her of that. And she'd gone to everybody, including the priest, trying to find help and had gotten no help. If you got sick, if you got the flu, you got some, whatever, you got a, a more debilitating disease, and if it was a communicable disease, and there were people in your family that got sick, the husband got sick, and the mother got sick, the husband wasn't out in the field working, neither was the wife able to do that, and the kids, they got sick, well, who's going to go to the store and get the food? What store? Well, they might have been places where they were selling something, certainly that was, was happening to, an ex to a certain extent, but... It was an agrarian society, right? Agriculture was the focus of what was happening. 90 plus percent of the people were farmers. So even if there was a store where you could go buy some things, maybe a stall on the street where you could buy trinkets or you could buy some, maybe some food that people brought in or whatever, most of what you got, you got because you grew it. If you were sick and couldn't grow it, you would die eventually because you didn't have the food to eat, to make, to grow for yourself, you couldn't keep that going, or whatever. So somebody had to step in and help you. And if all the family is sick, the most natural thing is what began to develop in the early Christian church was that the deacons and deaconesses began to minister to the needs of the people because they were appointed for the purpose of meeting the physical needs of the people in the church. And so as time goes by, that's what you begin to find happening. And there were, there's evidence from the studies that he has done, and he's the one who's done it exhaustively, that you go and you find that there were male deacons and there were female deacons. Probably didn't call them deaconesses at that time. That's a, uh, a, an illusion, or I should say a, a language transition that came later in time. But he talks about some of the places where there were cemeteries, uh, headstones. You know, there's a lot of history in a headstone. A lot of history in a headstone. You ever walk through a cemetery and just kind of look at some of that history and trying to figure out some things out behind it? Well, some of that comes out even in this kind of situation, and he brings out some of that in this chapter. I'm not bogging down on all of that. I just wanted to point that out to you, that these female deacons of the first century were... Uh, as pointed out on page 19, uh, Riley, who is one of the people that he quotes here, is likening deaconesses to angels of mercy and refers to Phoebe and Dorcas as biblical examples of such. Luke gives us the account of Dorcas in the book of Acts. No, now, I should say, there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. When he, Peter, was come, all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Like Phoebe, Tabitha was a succorer, a helper, a protector, one who shields from suffering and goes out to the aid of those in distress. She showed compassion for the underprivileged of Joppa and made coats and garments to protect them from the weather. So you have these deacons and deaconesses, not that uh, Dorcas is called that, and we look at her, of course, as the establishment of what we call today community services, but it is that whole idea of caring for the needs of people and the work that was being done. What's the lesson in all of this? Well, first of all, the first part of that lesson is 
deacons and deaconesses are not just preparing people for baptism by putting a baptismal cloak on them or a, or a robe on them and providing that and making sure the tank is full. They're not just preparing for communion or opening the church doors. They're caring for the needs of people. And that's what deacons and deaconesses have done down through the ages. And that is the model you and I need to get back to the model of being true servants, because there is a reason, as we pointed out, God's church grow, grew more explosively after deacons were appointed than they were before that, because the leaders of the church that God had appointed to the work of preaching the gospel were more able to dedicate their time to preaching the word and to prayer and the kinds of things that helped to advance the work and the planning that needed to be done. And while... Now, the other needs would have bogged them down and taken them away from that work. By appointing the deacons, that work was able to be concentrated on, and the work began to explode. And that's what needs to happen again today, right? We need an explosion again. When the Spirit of God is being poured out, and I see the Spirit of God being poured out, not, not yet as, as the latter rain there, but the Spirit of God is moving. Even in North America, I see Him working in your hearts, my heart, the hearts of God's believers. When we do an unlock revelation, uh, we've done some of these things before, but God has brought together all the pieces and He's trying to make it even stronger and stronger. And we're, we're focusing on Grow Michigan again because as we see God working, we want Him to be able to continue to work and to continue to multiply that work. Well, what are you going to do when one day you go to church on Sabbath morning and you've got 100 people in your church and that's normal attendance? And the next Sabbath you come back, you've got 200 Somebody's got to meet those needs. Somebody's got to do that. Now, it may not happen literally overnight, but some of your churches are having that kind of a challenge even now. Strong Tower Radio is preaching the message like crazy out there, 24-7. And you know what? There are people that are listening to it. Can you believe that? Is that true? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, if 100 people showed up, that's 200 that's exactly it. And if we're going to be able to meet those needs, if more, what's your first name again? Jim. Jim. If there are more people like Jim, Jim's a truck driver, right? And he was listening to the radio and he winds up walking into the Clare Church and, and all of that. There are more people like that and we're seeing it. He's only one of many. And that's happening now. The, the Lansing community is going to turn on that radio station. And by the grace of God, the Grand Rapids uh, area is going to turn on that. You need about $300,000. So if you've got a little of that lying around, send it over to Strong Tower Radio, okay? And when that goes on, imagine what's going to happen. And God is working through that because He sees these people working and He wants to be able to meet those needs. And we've got to have deacons and deaconesses who not only are disciples and helping to disciple people, but they're going to help those churches meet the needs of all those new people coming in. Exciting times, right? Okay. A little side trip here that I just want to open the door on and close it. I want to be able to do it in about five minutes or less. And that is, as we look at the issue of deaconesses, I want to point out something here. I'm going to go over to chapter 7. 
Go over to chapter 7. I'm going to come back to a couple of the other pieces there in a, in a moment, but I just want to deal with the issue of the deaconess element. I actually found, when I first got this book, and you know, if you're not skeptical today, you, you're, you're not wise. Just because a book winds up on your, on your desk or your, you know, comes to you in the mail or whatever, and it claims to be a good Seventh-day Adventist book, doesn't mean it is. All right? And I, I don't want to build so much skepticism in us that we don't trust each other. But we do have to test it by the word, right? And so when this book came to me, I, I didn't know what to expect from it. And I was a little concerned about something. And then I saw this chapter on women serving as deacons. And, well, of course, deacons are deaconesses and, and that work and all that's in there and, uh, and, and that part of it. But the... Um, the, the main issue that I want to be able to bring out to you is that I was a little concerned where he's going in terms of ordination and wondering if something, uh, some platform was being set in all of this and we were headed in a direction that really wasn't the direction that God wanted us to be able to go. Go to, I said chapter 7, I want you to go to chapter 5. Chapter Utilization of deacons and deaconesses in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He has an interesting chapter here and a way of reflection. Notice the title of the chapter is The Systematic Cause of the Underutilization of Deacons and Deaconesses. Now here's the good news, brother. He says the systematic cause of the underutilization of deacons and deaconesses. Here's the bottom line. They are being underutilized in your churches. All right, And the reason they're being underutilized is because they are doing what they do, but they're not doing what they should be doing, according to the Bible, from the Bible's perspective and spirit of prophecy and the direction that is outlined there. So I'm not faulting anybody. You know, you do what you've been trained to do. And if you haven't been trained in a class like this and you learn from the deacon before you and the deacon before you and the deacon before you, you all know the story of the turkey, right? The turkey, the half turkey at, tur at Thanksgiving. How many of you know that story? Yeah. All right, that's right, that's good, half the turkey. Well, a quick story here. The, the um, Thanksgiving comes around, and the young lady just got married, and she's got her first Thanksgiving, and everybody's coming to her home. And so they, uh, husband and the new husband and new wife, they are looking forward to this event, that social event in their family, and so she starts to fix the turkey for Sabbath. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist story, no. <laughs> anyway, it's just a story. And apparently it's true, but anyway. All right, keep going. So she prepares the turkey, but when preparation for the, of the turkey, she cuts it in half. And her husband, who grew up in a home where they had the whole turkey instead of just half a turkey, said, why did you do that? She said, well, that's how you fix a turkey. And he said, well, where'd you find that out from? And she said, well, that's the way my mother taught me. And she'd never thought anything different, so she goes to mother uh, before Thanksgiving and says, you know, my husband's questioning me with fixing the turkey here, but I learned from you to cut the turkey in half. And she said, well, yeah, that's the way you fix a turkey, and, and yeah, that's the way I taught you and all that. Well, now mother is starting to think, you know, why did I do that? Well, I did that because grandma did that. And so she goes back to her mother, who's still alive, fortunately, or we'd be in real trouble with this story. And she, uh, she goes back to grandma and she talks to her grandma and says, 
you know, you taught me to, to fix the turkey by cutting it in half. And I taught, you know, I did that all my married life, and I taught my daughter to do that. But now we're being questioned on this. Why did you cut the turkey in half? Oh, she said, that's easy, because my oven was so small, I couldn't get the turkey in unless I did. <laughs> so you probably have learned, just like everybody else, from the person before you, and you're just passing on what you've learned before. But it's time for us to go back and be biblical Christians and start doing what the Bible tells us to do and to handle that. All right, Rick. Because it works. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. His question was, and for the recording and, and everybody else, is what, who then has the responsibility for teaching this the, to, the, to the people um, and, and beginning to turn that around? Actually, he has a lot of suggestions along that line in the back of this book, and I will summarize it real quickly here, and we can talk a little bit more in detail later on. But he says that, in my words, it's really the responsibility of the church to figure this out and to start working it out and developing a plan for it. But obviously, the church is George. You know, let George do it. But there's no George in the church, so somebody's got to lead it. And I would say to you and to all of you, the person who needs to lead that is the person who knows that it needs to change. And that person then goes to uh, the pastor, for example, and works with them and maybe the elders. And uh, you're an elder, so take it to the board of elders, involve the pastor in the process, and then start discussing what needs to happen in order to bring about this revival and, and, re and getting away from this underutilization of deacons and deaconesses. So it's a really good question, but somebody just takes that, takes that responsibility and then begins to develop a plan to be able to accomplish it. The underutilization is what I've described already where people are not doing that work. How did that come about? Well, there's several reasons for that that he points out, and I'm going to give you two main ones. And the last one I don't want to overemphasize. It's an interesting point and worthy of some consideration and an appropriate consideration. The first point in this is that as time went by, certain changes in society and the way things functioned began to take away the need for some of the things of the way the deacons and deaconesses were doing them. For example, as time has progressed and the study of medicine and there are doctors and there are nurses and there are EMTs and all of that, whereas in a lot of true sense, the deacons and deaconesses were acting like nurses and acting like doctors to a certain extent and there were no laws against it, in the past, as time came by, and we had, you know, you don't give shots to anybody, or you don't do doctoring, or you don't do all of that because the law says you better not do that. So some of those things began to back off the need of those kinds of things. Then along the way, the church also began to develop separate ministries for some things. Dorcas was the forerunner of our community services, but she was like a deaconess caring for the physical needs of people. But we got into specialized ministries over time, and now we have a community service center. And so we expect the community service center to be meeting the physical needs, even of church members, even though... What really happens is that gets pushed off to the side and we take care of only the community and there's a problem with that. 
but nonetheless, that's there. And so slowly but surely, some of those duties of the deacons and deaconesses got to push that way. And the deacons and deaconesses, my summary, began to specialize in keys and water and plumbing and some of those kinds of things. And that's how that underutilization came. So number one, you had a diminishing of those duties and it's not necessary for that to happen. And these things can be revived because I think those things are still needed. The community services center may be doing what they're doing, but who's going and visiting the homes of the members and finding out who doesn't have food and who needs clothing and who needs their house taken care of? What about the widows in your church and the poor in your church and the, and the people in your church, you know, the, the, the um, single mothers in their church who need their cars taken care of and the single fathers who may not know how to do that either and need you know help with those kinds. Who's taking care of those kinds of things? It should be the deacons and deaconesses that are doing that kind of work. So there needs to be a revitalization of that kind of thing. So I've summarized part of what's in this chapter. There's another interesting thing in this chapter. Yes, please. Is the deacon, if something happens in the church, a bouncer also has to be? Oh, what a question. You do not know what you just asked. Yeah, I was afraid of that. <laughs> Actually, it's a really good question, and I had an interesting conversation about it yesterday. We live in an interesting world, don't we? You know, it's, it's, it's easy for us to imagine that Orlando is never going to happen to Michigan or to a church, but we now know churches are susceptible as well. So who's handling all of that stuff? Who is being aware of what's going on around you oh, and being aware of that? Oh, yeah, they're going to be there, aren't they, Jim? <laughs> so that's a, that's a really good question, and I, will, I, I wanted to raise it a little higher because of the way that you asked it, and I suspect you had some of that in mind, but the bottom line is deacons and deaconesses need to be caring for some of those kinds of issues and recognizing we live in this day and age. And pastors, we're, we have trained some pastors in how to be alert to this. I've gone to the state police and I've gone through a training on how to recognize when somebody's carrying a gun coming into your church. And there are ways that you can tell that a person is actually carrying a gun. You've got to know what to look for. And one of them, for example, is that a person who carries a gun, even somebody who carries a gun all the time, will be found kind of patting it down every once in a while, just kind of wondering if it's there, and if you see somebody doing that. Now, don't go up and grab the gun out of their pocket if you see somebody doing that. They may want to make sure that their phone is still in their pocket, but it's one of those kinds of clues that are there. All I'm saying is we do need to be aware of what's happening and the kinds of things that are going on. So, good question. Glad you asked that. I'm going to continue on with uh, uh, another part of it, and, and in the next segment, again, I'm in Chapter 5, and I want to point this out to you. Um, by the way, some of what I said was on page 31, like there. It says, in regards to Dorcas, Adventist Community Services, I summarized all that. So I just want you to know I, I pulled that in. But there's an interesting another piece that he brings out here. And that's found on page 32. He points out that something interesting did happen in the early Adventist church in relationship to deacons and deaconesses and particularly in relationship to deaconesses. 
And you'll, you find the uh, story beginning on the bottom of page 31. So follow with me in the story. Did I say five minutes? Okay. Well, we did get off on some other parts of it, but this is the part I want to spend five minutes on, or less. To further undermine, I'm down to the bottom of that page. You with me? The spiritual calling of the deaconesses, the church discontinued their ordination for almost a century. He points out that there were ordinations of deacons and deaconesses for a period of time, okay? In the Christian church, not the Adventist church. But then he points that out. And then he says, and to add insult to injury, proponents for the ordination of female elders and female pastors are misusing Ellen White's statements made in 1895 in favor of the ordination of deaconesses to support their position in relationship to the ordination of women uh, for gospel ministry, okay? Although the statement was presented in chapter four, I will repeat it here for lack of clarity. Women who are willing, and that's, I do have to go back to chapter four. I still haven't gotten where I want to be. Women who are willing to consecrate some of their time to the service of the Lord should be appointed to visit the sick, look after the young, minister to the necessities of the poor. They should be set apart to this work by prayer and the laying on of hands. And he points out that this is not a place and a statement of hers supporting the ordination of women to gospel ministry. I don't want to get in that discussion today. I just want to make it clear. And those who support that position do not use this for that, or at least shouldn't use this for that. They might be some who do. They should be set apart for the work by prayer and laying on of hands. In some cases, they will need to counsel with the church officers or the ministers, but if they are devoted women maintaining a vital connection with God, they will be a power for good in the church. This is another means of strengthening and building up the church. And he then goes on and talks a little bit more about that. Back in chapter 4, there's a little piece of history here that I do want you to catch. It's in the history of the deacons and deaconesses in the early Adventist church. And she points out, I mean, he points out that um, I'm on page 23 right now. When Ellen White was in Australia and Willie White was in Australia, there, was, uh, there are some records of something that transpired there, and this is the records of that. Down at the bottom on page 23, June 24, 1899, the Ashfield Church in Sydney elected G. F. Goodman as elder. The church records tell, records tell us that he was ordained as elder by the laying on of hands. Clearly, Adams at the time understood the laying on of hands as affecting ordination. That's a kind of general statement because there's some interesting discussions regarding ordination today. But then comes the specific part, which on page 24, which officers were ordained to their tasks? This again is the record. This is a quotation now. Again, the Ashfield Church Minutes and two separate entries give us the answer. At the meeting on August 10, 1895, the nominating committee rendered its report. The record notes immediately following the election, the officers were called to the front where pastors Corliss and McCullough set apart the elder deacons and deaconesses by prayer and the laying on of hands. The deacons and the deaconesses were ordained to that special work. I don't want to say a whole lot more about that except this. There is no argument 
within the Seventh-day Adventist Church about whether or not women who are the deaconesses could or should be ordained to that ministry by the laying on of hands. There's really no discussion on that. It's in the church manual. It was out for a while, but it's in there. And it's built on these kinds of experiences that are here. This does not fuel or contribute to that other discussion because it's not part of that discussion. But the point that he makes in chapter 5 is that one of the reasons that deacons and deaconesses have been underutilized is because by removing the ordination of deaconesses, we have actually lowered their status and their position in the church when it should be lifted up, not lowered down. Okay? And again, please do not put this in that other discussion. It's not part of that discussion. This is a discussion of deacons and deaconesses and the work that needs to be done in relationship to that. Ellen White clearly was supportive of it. Uh, the early pioneers were clearly supportive of it. The church is supportive of it today. It's in the church manual that way. And there's no reason why they sh uh, deaconesses should not be ordained in the local church. Now, a word of caution. Some of you are saying, well, guess what I need to do when I get back to church? Go through a process with it, okay? Because you don't want to get it mixed up in a discussion that it's not part of, and you need to allow the church to adjust to that thought. You'll have the support of myself and Elder Gallimore and Elder Mitchiff. You have the support of the church manual and all of that. You've got the support but just work through it because you don't want to be spending all your time doing that instead of getting on with the work that God has given you to do, okay? End of that so more or less five-minute discussion. Okay, so I've already talked a little bit about how the Adventist church did work with deacons and deaconesses. If we go back to chapter 4, where we were a moment ago, it's page 21, there are some other things that are pointed out there. And this is just by way of history. Again, I'm not going to bog down on it. The deacons in the, in the church, uh, in the early Adventist church, especially took care of the issues related to the communion service, wine, and the grape juice, as in that way, they didn't want it to become wine, and there wasn't refrigeration in those days as we have today, and so they had to take sure and make sure that it didn't turn before it, you know, became uh, the symbol for the, the blood of Jesus shed, which would be unfermented grape juice. And they had to take care of some of those things, so it's an interesting bit of history in that. Also talks about the fact that, you know, people were really scattered out around in those days, and there was a need during those days to, to uh, collect the offerings and the tithes and all of that, because sometimes the farmers that were a long way away didn't get into church, and they, so they went out and got the tithes and the offerings and brought them in. Well, translate that to our own day, maybe the deacons and deaconesses should still not go out and collect the offering every Sabbath in people's homes, but it wouldn't hurt for them to go out and teach stewardship because, you know, there might be only 50% of the people in the church that are faithfully returning tithe, and the deacons and deaconesses might have that, you know, they're going to visit them anyway. This is a good time to be doing some of that teaching, that training, part of the work that could be done basic understanding of some of these things here, and that's kind of what you're getting from this. 
and uh, a couple of the points that I wanted to be able to bring out and share with you. So those are some of the ways that the early Adventist church were utilizing them. And they, the early Adventist church had to grow not only in its structure, and not only in its theology, but it also had to grow in its structure. Remember that the early Adventist church didn't even want to organize at all. I mean, there was a heavy discussion going on by the time we got to Battle Creek, 1863, and the idea of forming a church. But there were things that forced that whole scenario, and that's another discussion. But property was one of those things. Organization. Um, people who were... Uh, rebellious against the doctrines of the church and creating division in the church and many other things began to point out the fact that the church would not survive without structure and organization. And so as it got into that, then it had to develop the understanding of deacons and deaconesses and their role, and that took time to be able to develop that. All right, now, here's what I'd like to begin to move into. The clock tells me that, hey... We have half an hour to begin to get into this, this area. Before I uh, move into a little bit, uh, a few more specifics um, in relationship to this, are there any questions that you might have? Usually you've been asking them, but I just want to take a pause here real quick and see if you have any questions that you want to ask. Okay? All right. If not, let's go to chapter 8. I believe that one of the reasons that the church is struggling like it is is because of the diminished understanding of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a disciple. It's natural for that to happen because the devil's constantly working to accomplish that fact. And so when I say natural, it's natural when we're not staying close to Jesus and seeking his counsel and direction, it's easy to start wandering away and not realize we've wandered away. You know, Babylon has a way of sneaking its way into the church. And it's easy for us to say we've got to call people out of Babylon, but you know, the Babylon can get its way back in again if we're not careful. And God has to deal with that issue. The Adventist church is not Babylon. I'm not saying that at all. But we as individuals can allow Babylon back into our hearts. And when that happens, we begin to kind of diminish the task and the work that God has given us and that he expects us to accomplish. And as a result, a lot of things begin to change. But when we begin to hear the voice of God calling to us, how many of you are currently, it's because I've got a few more people in here that are newer today, how many of you, again, are deacons in your church? Raise your hands if you would, please. You're deacons in your church. How many of you are deaconesses in your church? Okay. How many of you are here because you are spies, spying out the land? <laughs> you may be an elder, or you may be something else, or you're just here to learn, but you're not a deacon or a deaconess. Okay? Okay, great. That's excellent. I love it. I love it. So you're here to, we are all here learning together about this task and this work and this, and this duty. But we're all Christians, and we all are moving ahead with that. As that fact, I want to place a little bit more emphasis on the work of a deacon and deaconess in relationship to advancing the gospel. One of the reasons that the church grew in the early Adventist church is because people like Stephen and Philip, two deacons, were constantly out there preaching, as well as doing the work of meeting the needs of the widows. 
They were appointed to the meeting the needs of the widows and they took care of that task. But along the way, they were also out there preaching and riling up the priests. Or they were out there meeting with the, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch on the road and, and preaching the truth there. They were doing that kind of work because they were Christians first and accomplishing that. Um, on page 49, uh, Deacons and Deaconesses, chapter 8, as teachers of the Word. There's one author, V. Meister, who happens to be an Adventist, who is quoted there where she says near the bottom of the, uh, that section before the uh, um, references below, says, And when she who is being baptized has come up from the water, let the deaconess receive her and teach and educate her in order that the unbreakable seal of baptism shall be kept in chastity and holiness. On this account, we say that the ministry of a woman deacon is especially required and urgent. That is a quote out of uh, the history of deaconesses uh, in history and in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's quoting another situation, but what a wonderful thought, right? You know, we're out there looking all over the place in our local churches for when a person is baptized, somebody who's going to be the mentor for that new member, correct? Who's going to be the discipler of that new disciple and lead them into a discipling experience? Who's going to be that? Well, who are we going to find? Well, maybe, you know, pastor, you could do that. Or what? You know what? Maybe the head elder could do that. Or... In some cases, we say, the, what about the person who led them you know, through the Bible studies? Well, I like that one. That's a good one. That would be a good mentor as well. But there's a really natural one, a deacon or a deaconess. A deaconess is helping them take, come out of the water and dry off and get ready to go out into the world and be a disciple. So they help them get dried off and kick them out into the street and out into the world and say, go have a nice Christian life. Wouldn't it be nice if the deaconesses had a different idea that maybe this person that I just helped physically get baptized, I can help spiritually become a disciple of Jesus and begin to take this responsibility on themselves and carry that role in that direction. Do I see your hand? That's a wonderful example, uh, Rick. You're just sharing. I'm repeating it for the recording here. That you uh, you have an example of somebody doing that kind of work and helping to lead that. Can you imagine what is going to happen to our churches? I didn't say if. I said what is going to happen to our churches when we begin to implement this on a whole scale level. With the, the God's work will advance mightily as we begin to take that part of the work seriously and accomplish that task. Thank you for that example. I think that's terrific. So the point that's being made here is that the work of sharing the gospel and advancing the gospel is more than just simply helping a person out of the baptistry. If you look at page 51, um, speaking there, 
again, uh, looking at somebody, they listed several items there in relationship to the importance of deacons being trained to preach and to proclaim the gospel. Number one, a deacon may be requested to preach at a baptism or a wedding or a funeral, especially when he or she has been the catalyst for the person coming to the church. Now, typically that's a deacon work, but it doesn't hurt to be trained to be able to do that. And there is nothing that says that a person can uh, has to be uh, an ordained minister to preach at a funeral. It's typical, it's normal, and that's what usually happens, but there's no law against it. State of Michigan is not going to bring the police in and arrest you for preaching at a funeral because you were only a deacon. <laughs> anyway, okay. If a deacon is also active in the local school during the week, he or she can help connect people to the church. Number three, conducting services during nursing home visits. Number four, leading a small Bible study group or an inquirer's group. Five, sitting in someone's living room discussing a favorite Bible text with them. Or six, conducting a bedside communion during a hospital visit. Now, this is actually a quotation of a, uh, out of another denomination, but the point is that they are heightening the work of a deacon or deaconess. So I don't want you to overdo that. I believe that the, in the Seventh-day Adventist context, this can be done in relationship to elders and deacons and deaconesses working together. Typically what happens after a communion service at your local church, and I hope this is typical at least because I... I saw a reaction in a group uh, yesterday, I think it was among the elders, and I got the impression that that isn't happening typically in the local church. And that is that after communion service, the pastor um, uh, gets the elders together and hands out the emblems with little kits and they go around and take the communion service to the shut-ins in the church, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Hmm, okay, that was better than I got in the other one. That was, that's, that's okay. So that's the kind of thing that was happening there. But you know what? What about a deacon or deaconess? You know, usually the deacons and deaconesses, they're just cleaning up afterwards and, and taking care of that. But what if they, because they are out visiting the members, they know these people, and they, some of those shut-ins are their people. What if they went along with the elders and helped to contribute to that? The elders leading out in the service, I mean, during the communion service, what do you do? You pass out the emblems, don't you? At least the deacons do and pass out those emblems. You're passing them out. You can do that. What about uh, ladies? They're helping contribute to that service. And when it goes to uh, washing the feet of, a, uh, of women, they're setting that part of it up and accomplishing that. Well, what about the shut-in or the person who wasn't able to be, uh, be there? Some lady who needs that service rendered to them and the, de and the elder is coming along with them, but now the deaconess is coming and contributing that. All I'm doing, I'm not trying to exhaust the subject. I'm saying think in light of these kinds of opportunities and kinds of challenges that are out there and the needs that need to be met. And that's the point that's being brought out in relationship to this. Now we're going to look a little bit more about teaching the Word of God a little farther and more in our advanced course, but I wanted to hit that highlight a little bit. I've already talked about chapter 9, the deacons and deaconesses as caregivers to the sick and the needy. I want to hit that again as a basic fundamental area that is neglected in our church. I know that when I was a pastor, I wish I'd had this material and looked at it more closely because I know that when I was pastoring, and I'll tell you Janet in Kalamazoo is where I had the experience I'm going to tell you about, I had people come to me and talk to me about the needs that they felt needed to be met. 
And it just didn't quite dawn on me that maybe the deacons and deaconesses were the ones who needed to be about doing some of that work and accomplishing that. Instead, I was feeling guilty as the pastor that I only had 24 hours in the day and that I should have been able to meet that need, but it couldn't do it. In reality, what should be happening, we should be all sharing that load and accomplishing that work that God has given us to do. Uh, we had a situation in the church um, where a young lady was uh, in her husband's uh, regulars to the church. Uh, she got sick. Uh, she had worked. So just repeating it for the, for the tape, you recognize that you've had situations where like there was someone sick, a woman in the church, and she expected the pastor to come by, but it never dawned on you that the, even though you'd visited her in other ways, that it was part of your duty to do that as well and to be sharing and ministering to her in relationship to that. That's part of what we're doing now. Um, and, and explaining this and being able to share with the needs of people. What about the fact that, I think I mentioned this yesterday in relationship to this, but what about the needs of folk who are sick at home? You know, when you're sick and if you've got an extended illness in your home and you're the person who normally mows the lawn, and if you're on Facebook, you know that I'm the one who mows the lawn at my house. Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. But any. My wife posted something this week about that whole scenario, actually last week, and, and all of that. It's kind of a standing joke. But at any rate, I'm the one who mows the lawn. She, all right, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> I've, been married 30, I've been married 39 years. My wife has mowed the lawn once in the 39 years. Now, she tells it this way, that she went all over the place mowing the lawn and not doing it right to make sure that she would never have to do it again. Whether that's true or that's just saying that she didn't know what she was doing and did, I've got this on tape. Oh boy, I'm really in trouble. At least I'm editing it. I'll <laughs> At any rate, so, um, so she, uh, she, that's kind of been a standing joke at our house. And you know, we, like in your home, some people, some of you do some things and some of you do the other. At any rate, she was trying to, she's kidding me that she was having a hard time getting a hold of me at camp meeting and texting me and all that. And you're busy and you don't always get to respond to everything. And so she sends me a text. I had no idea why she's sending it to me. She sends me this text. And the text says, I'm in the middle of a meeting last week and getting ready for camp meeting. And she sends a text and it says, I am having a terrible time getting the lawnmower started. I don't know if I should be pulling the rope harder or, or faster. I saw that text. I happened to see it at that very moment, and I thought, this is not right. <laughs> and I went out there, and I picked up the phone. I mean, I dialed the number and got there, probably relatively close to 45 seconds from the time I got the text. And my wife is laughing her head off on the other end, <laughs> and a friend of hers on the other end, because they were successful in getting me to respond by threatening to mow the lawn. Okay? And... Uh, and no, no, she wasn't even, she didn't, you could tell by the text that she really didn't know what she was doing. What happened was I'd actually contracted with a, little, a local neighbor kid to mow the lawn while I was gone. And she didn't know about it and she saw the contract that I actually had him fill out. Little thing, you know, I just wanted to teach him. Then I found out his mother was a lawyer and I thought, oh. <laughs> He said, he, when I had him sign the contract, he said, I got to call my mother and clear that. And he said, my mother's a lawyer. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> I thought I was teaching him, you know, to, 
to do a nice neighborhood kid, and they'd come around and say, anyway. So we do, the, we do those kinds of duties. We have those kinds of separations in our homes, and, and we have all of that. But anyway, I don't know where in the world I got off on that track on. But the fact is we have these different duties that we do, and, and we accomplish them. And when we are working in the local church, uh, we are used to doing certain things certain ways, and we have those kinds of opportunities. But it's time for us to go back and start thinking about the needs that are out there. And I know where I got off on that is having to do with mowing the lawn. Sometimes people get sick, and if it's the person who normally mows the lawn, and that person's sick, and the other person doesn't know how to do it, and doesn't want to learn how to do it, but really doesn't know how to do it, it's nice when somebody in the church cares enough to meet that particular need at that particular time. And, and I think that's where deacons and deaconess, you can't meet every need every time, but you should be organized to know when some of those things are happening. And if you've got somebody who's going through an extended illness, especially an extended illness in your church, start thinking about what are some of the needs that person has that we could contribute to, uh, to meeting some of those needs during this time that they're in that extended illness. So that's my point. So chapter 9 is talking a little bit about that, caring for the sick, but also don't forget the needy. It's one of the reasons you need to be visiting the people in your church. Because even the people that have been part of your church for a long time, you may not know and understand what their needs are because all you have done is gotten acquainted with them after a potluck or over a potluck lunch. And we're sitting here and we're just simply talking and yeah, we're, you know how things are going? Oh, that's great. And uh, well, I heard you lost your job. Okay, well, you know what? And that's the end of that conversation. You didn't lose your job, did you, Sue? Do you have a, have, a, have a job? So at any rate, you're, you're getting that acquainted. But then if you're a deacon or a deaconess and you find out that Sue just lost her job, start asking your question, what does that mean in relationship to how things are going? Wouldn't it be great if the deacons and deacon or deacon or deaconesses, not all of them, but one showed up at their home and just said, hey, I heard you lost your job. I thought I'd stop by and, and just uh, let you know we're concerned and we'll be praying for you and, and caring about you. Probably ought to make an appointment before you do that because she may not be home looking for a job. But if we started ministering to the needs of people that way and started caring about those things, and then we get there and we find out that, yeah, she's, she's lost her job and maybe it's a, a devastating kind of situation. She, you know what? The truth of the matter is Sue doesn't know how she's going to pay the house payment the next month. You know, some churches have a benevolent fund set aside for people that are stuck in an emergency. Why should a person get kicked out of their home, and it usually takes time, but kicked out of their home because they could get some help from the church. I didn't mean paying their old bills or whatever, but getting them through an emergency period or, or something there to make sure that their emergency needs are met. I did say emergency needs. And then helping them also to realize there may be other resources if they don't get a job quickly and get those. You see what I'm saying? The poor and the needy sometimes are right there among us, not just through community services, and even that's a good thing, uh, to be aware of. By the way, the deacons and deaconesses could do a great work of following up some of the people that come through a community service center. Now, because of confidentiality, you've got to be careful how you work through that process and all of that, but I'm just saying think. There are creative ways that you can do those kinds of things, and you can offer those kinds of services to people that would meet some of their needs. Lots of great opportunities for caring for the needs of people. Chapter 10. 
And with this, I think we'll come to the end of our, our, our session on basic things uh, today. No, no, I need to hit a couple others. Um, one of the things we pointed out in our discussion yesterday is that deacons and deaconesses were developed in the local church, deacons in particular, specifically in response to a conflict, correct? I believe it's time for our churches to reactivate that original purpose for the work of deacons and deaconesses. Along with the other tasks, this is a very important one. There are conflicts in almost every church. Some of them are small, but the small ones do become big ones. Sometimes they are big just by nature of them, but big ones usually were small ones to start with. And if the church were organized for managing those conflicts before they even get to be medium-sized or any of that kind of thing, how much stronger would God's church be today instead of the pastor having to run around putting out fires all the time? You know, whenever a conflict comes, call the pastor and tell him, I pastor, just want to let you know there's a conflict going on. Thanks. Bye. And that was the head deacon. So imagine if the deacons and deaconesses got training in terms, some of you don't need training in conflict management. You had kids. <laughs> All right? So you know how to handle that. Or you had brothers and sisters, and you learned how to work through that process, and you'd be good coaches for being able to work through some of those kinds of things. But what if as a deacon or deaconess you heard that there was a conflict going on between a brother and a sister, instead of calling the I don't mean siblings, I mean a brother in the church uh, or two brothers in the church, let's keep it that direction. Instead of calling the pastor and saying these two brothers are at each other's throat because the one backed into the other person's car and doesn't want to pay for it, wouldn't it be great if the deacon started to get involved in that situation and said, look, what can we do to mentor this and what are the spiritual principles here that we could apply to this situation and how can we help solve this problem? And well, I'm not going to solve it until the pastor shows up. Well, I don't think that usually happens. All people need sometimes is a mentor to help to guide them through that process and to work through some of those kinds of things. So chapter 10 is pointing out the need for deacons and deaconesses to serve as conflict managers, and that in the past, some of these kinds of things have indeed be d been done. He points out some of the history in relationship to this, not only going back to the original early Christian church in, in this, but also pointing out that in some denominations, this kind of thing has, has happened as well. If you look at the top of page 61, he has a quotation there from a book, Congregations in Conflict, Cultural Models of Local Religious Life uh, from Cambridge University Press. It's not an Adventist book. It's just looking at it from a historical point of view. But um, the quotation um, says, let me get to the point that I want. Yeah. Uh, the deacons conducted a series of public meetings to ascertain, I'm beginning on the bottom of page 60, to ascertain how the other members felt about this issue. The pastor attended the meetings but did not chair them. Neither did he voice his position on the issue. Becker states that the pastor explained to her that his role was to, this is the person who's writing about this, that his role was to ensure that the process of making the decision was caring and open. The process lasted over a year and a half with an agreed-upon outcome for change. 
And then White, the author of the book, says, this is an example of deacons serving in the role of conflict managers. Rather than the pastor managing that particular conflict, whatever it was, the deacons and deaconesses were the ones that were managing that conflict. Can you imagine a pastor being bogged down for a year and a half trying to solve that problem? Now, I don't think they did that every day. They weren't working on that all the time, but they managed that conflict until it finally came to a resolution that they could agree upon. There's a great book on conflict resolution. I encourage you to write this down. You can get it online. I have it on my, uh, on my computer, um, and you can get it as a, on an OS system or whatever. But it, uh, you can also buy it in hard copy. You can go to most Christian bookstores, I think, carry it. It's not by an Adventist, but it's really good. And it's called The Peacemaker, and the author is Ken Sand, S-A-N-D-E. He's actually an attorney, but he's a Christian. And I understand this book has been used down at Southern Adventist uh, University, some of our pastors, and in Michigan were exposed to that book and they mentioned it to me and I got a hold of a copy of it and I've read a good portion of that book and very biblical, very solid and this man works in, uh, in helping uh, people in the local church to be able to solve uh, kind of conflicts and the kinds of things that come up and you know some of us are not qualified to deal with some of the issues that come up. I mean, the man's a lawyer. And uh, we're not able to do all of that. But at the same time, there are many things that we can work on. He's got some great principles for conflict resolution in there that are biblically based. And that's the part that I really appreciate. And there's two things that he does in that. He's very biblically, biblically based in what he shares. And number two, he has some great examples of real life experiences where he used those principles and being able to rectify some of those problems. And so you want some good reading in, in relationship to that. I mean, I've so overwhelmed you now, I might as well give you a whole library's worth of suggestions of what to read and, uh, and overwhelm you. Just go back and fall asleep on it. But if you get a hold of that book, you'll find it'd be a great tool in relationship to this area of ministry. Um, so I do want to point out to you that there are issues on the bottom page 61. It says, uh, it has some items that are listed there. I numbered them, and the first one that I noticed right at the bottom of that page says that, uh, uh, he says that deacons may be called upon to provide counseling for family problems arising from domestic violence, financial crises, marriage or family relationship problems. Number four, parent and child problems, premarital counseling. Number five, as well as the need for spiritual advice. Now, again, these are the kinds of areas and most of those, premarital counseling, for example, will typically fall in the role of a pastor. And, and that's fine. That's no problem. But there are other of these areas that you can minister to as you're visiting people and you begin to discover that there may be conflicts in the home or there may be challenges in terms of parenting and, and other kinds of things. And finances, now that's a big one. And deacons and deaconesses may be well qualified to be able to deal with that issue or can be qualified in terms of, I don't mean becoming uh, financial planners, that's not what I mean, but becoming individuals who are able to give suggestions to people of how to, uh, to form a budget. Some people have never done that in their lives and they haven't a clue how to do it, but they need to do it in order to be able to survive financially. 
A lot of these kinds of things would resolve a lot of conflicts that happen in people's homes. My wife is a marriage counselor, and she'll tell you that a lot of the counseling that she does, because she does marriage counseling with couples, and uh, the, a lot of the counseling that she does is in relationship to managing and how to handle those issues of finances, dealing with those kinds of things. So some basic ideas here in relationship to deacons and deaconesses. What I didn't talk about, and I need to just run by this as I close the door today, you already know about communion services and baptisms. I would add to you, do your part not only to make them mechanical, but to make them special. He's got some great suggestions in here about how to incorporate some of these things. You know, a lot of our baptisms are just, let's get the baptism and then get, the, get on with the church service, and it's just another uh, event in there like prayer or a, song, or a song or whatever. But this is somebody's life that's just been changed for the good. What about the deacons and deaconesses uh, showering on that? Maybe not during the church service, but afterwards providing a special opportunity for them and, and caring for them and whatever. Think about creative ways that you can do this kind of ministry in serving the people, even in the areas that you normally just think of it as routine. Maybe even in terms of mowing the lawn and fixing the plumbing and the other kinds of things that you do. All important ministries that also need to be done. Well, folks, thank you very much. I'm going to have a closing prayer and let you get out this door. I am one minute over, and uh, that tells me I'm out of time. So let's bow our heads for prayer, okay? Father in heaven, thank you so much again for the Word of God that teaches us um, exactly what you need in your church. Here we are talking together about basic responsibilities of deacons and deaconesses and the tasks that they carry. And the truth is we've underutilized this very important leadership role in the church. Lord, number one, forgive us because we didn't go to your word and search it out like we should. And that includes me. I've had my experience in that too. But Lord, as you forgive us, I pray that you will also empower us to move on and to do this work better and to do it well and to strengthen your church by stepping up to the plate and the task and responsibilities you've given us. As we go our way this afternoon, go with us and bless us through this evening until we can gather again tomorrow afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.